Hello and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor and this is the weekly podcast where I interview different editors. This week my guest is Jacob Morosovic, publisher at Dawn Books and co-editor of The White Review. Dawn Books is of course the publishing imprint of the famous London book chain and publishes books both fiction and non-fiction, old and new. We'll be discussing republishing some unjustly out-of-print women, including the novel Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker, and non-fiction by the likes of Natalia Ginsberg and M.F.K. Fisher. We're also going to be discussing some contemporary fiction like the Pulitzer Prize finalist In the Distance by Herman Diaz. As always, stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode, and enjoy. So yeah, people will be basking at home, not just in the chat, but also in the ambience of this <laughs> cafe. Um, so I think, it, you know, most people will be familiar with Dance as a bookshop, but you work on the publishing side of the business. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what kind of things you do? Yeah, sure. So um, the publisher grew out of the bookshops um, and we are 10 next year. Wow. Um, and the original idea was uh, to publish books that were being recommended by customers that were no longer in print or books that our booksellers remembered selling that had suddenly disappeared from the market right. um, and to revive these great authors who had, who had kind of lost, who'd, who'd been lost, I guess, in big publishing mm. or in backlists um, that weren't being properly promoted. Um, so the very first books were reissues. Um, and and the and the publisher was launched by Laura McCauley, who was uh, one of my predecessors, um, and you know she did everything and kind of set it up very impressively. Um, and that so in, they did mostly reprints, um, and then moved into um, publishing new books, right. um, which is and now we we do a mixture of both old and new. Um, historically, we've done more reissues and now we're moving into doing more new books right um, and how many books would you say you publish a year we do about 12 a year it's okay. usually one a month right that's um, a nice balance yeah there's <laughs> three and a half of us in the office okay. so, <laughs> so it's it's enough for, yeah for it's that funny that you because I, I was a second-hand book that's bookseller that's kind of how i got started in books and that happened all the time that people would say can you get this book anymore or you know, always things would crop up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, and because of your secondhand things, like stuff would come in that you could then look up on, you know, AB Books or one of those sites and see they're selling for literally hundreds of pounds. And if you could just reissue a small number of them, they would sell immediately. Yeah, uh, and you see, you see there's demand for books that you wouldn't realize unless you're mm, working in the bookshop that people yeah. remember. And, um, and also that I definitely feel like a lot of the books that fall out of print are books by women. Um, and I definitely don't discriminate between new and old if it's an exciting author. Mm. So for me, it's all, it also feels a, like a feminist project to kind of bring back um, these authors that mm. were lost because they weren't regarded as interesting or as important as their male counterparts. Mm. Um, but how did you get started in books originally? What was your first kind of professional exposure to books? Um, so I started on the HarperCollins graduate scheme right after graduation um, which was amazing and very um, lucky. I didn't really know anything about publishing um, and when I was graduating I had a big panic about what I was going to do with myself 
and um, basically just went through the spines of my bookshelf looking at all the different publishers and then Googled them all. And that's how I found <laughs> out about the HarperCollins graduate scheme. <laughs> um, so, and applied and, and got on that and that was amazing because that was 18 months of just being trained up basically across the whole company. Um, right, I, so it was somewhere between a kind of internship and an entry-level job. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And they were very much... It wasn't quite fast tracking, but they were very much thinking like, where will we put you when you when we're done with you? You know, right. where will you go into the into the company? And there's still a few. I think a couple of people are still working. Right, at Harper that's so interesting because, of course, like anyone who wants to get into publishing has to kind of self decide which bit of it is for them. Um, yeah, and lots and lots of people want to work in editorial because it seems to them to be the the bit of publishing that what they think of when they think of publishing. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, whereas this was, uh, we we could all choose a longer placement, so I chose one in editorial. Um, but it, all, it it meant that w- I was exposed to parts of the business that I wouldn't have mm. known about. So the first placement I did was in publicity for uh, celebrity books. Wow. Uh, <laughs> which was, I had to like learn who these celebrities were, but um, that was quite like surprising, and especially I think it was quite good because I, you know graduated with an English literature degree and I was so pretentious and snobbish about books and it was quite good to go somewhere mm. where um, the focus was quite different yeah. and to show me that that was one of the business sides of publishing. Yeah, because I remember getting into it again as a quite pretentious English lit grad thinking, oh great, we're going to make these amazing things. And the first internship it was in the rights department, which is something you don't even know exists. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and again, just seeing where the money came from and how the business worked was kind of a really kind of quite joyful awakening, actually. Yeah, exactly. I mean, saying all that, I then did my editorial <laughs> placement on Fourth Estate and sure, refused okay. to leave. So it's, I don't think I learned. <laughs> I I learned well, look, you can dip your toe in without. <laughs> yeah, I know it exists, but no, it has been. Especially the publicity side has been very useful at, at my old job at Melbourne House UK and also at Daunt, where I was doing publicity really as part of my job alongside mm. editorial. I guess when you're in a small team like that, I mean, you know, everyone speaks about the editor's role of selling the book internally first and foremost. Almost, but however, when you get to a, such a small team, you only have those one and a half other people to yeah, exactly. <laughs> to so that you know, you are actually bizarrely the best person to sell it outwardly as well. Yeah, and I think things have changed now in terms of social media, and you know, I know, I know the auth- authors that we're publishing. I know which reviewers are going to like mm. them. So it's just as easy for me to email them or to send them yeah. a copy um, as yeah. it is for a publisher. And I actually, I think I came across one of the authors we're going to talk about, um, Natalie, um, Gin- Nati- Nati- Natalia Ginsburg. Got it. Because um, I saw you tweeting about her other book, Family Lexicon. And that was like, oh, right, that sounds great. I'm going to buy that. So, oh, good. So it's working. <laughs> good. Um, but before we get on to talking about some Daunt books, we're gonna, the first book we're going to talk about is Maggie Nelson. And the Argonauts. Um, so you're working for Melville House UK here. So, like, I mean, I'm sure lots of American people will know about Melville House. But what, how would you describe it? Um? So, um, Melville House is a really incredible, almost activist publisher. Um, set up in the US, and then I was hired um, to launch the UK side of things. Um, and it was kind of they had lots of books that were well known here, mm. um, but they wanted a presence on the ground. Um, and they do loads of great things. They do translation. They do um, 
really great political nonfiction, um, literary fiction, a real mixture of things. And they do old books as well. So they have the Arthur Novella series and mm. the Never Sink series, which is books that, again, have gone out of print that shouldn't have. Um, so a real, a real mixture, really, and very, very left-leaning. Um, they published the Torture Report, for example, um, and... A million other amazing things like you could go on all day. But let's talk about the Argonauts specifically. So was this a book that the U.S. arm were publishing anyway and you brought No, no. no. So it was published in the U.S. by Grey Wolf. Right. Um, and it was so interesting because it was a book that I had... The first time I came across it was in the Grey Wolf catalog. Um, one of the ways that I find books is just going through other publishers in the US or abroad whose catalogs I admire and just trying to work out what they're publishing and um, what I'd like to see um, and I remember reading the beginning of that book in the Grey Wolf catalog and just being like what is this this is amazing and I'd heard lots of people talking about um, her previous book Bluettes mm. um, which I then also read which is great which is just a, um, one of those books that when you meet someone else who loves Bluettes you just end up <laughs> <laughs> intensely talking about it for a long time. Well, yeah, and I mean, it was... Before before The Argos was published in the UK, I think people knew about Maggie Nelson, but I kept talking to people about this book before we published it, and it was so... People just didn't know what I was talking about, really. Mm. It was really interesting, and then it kind of hit, and it was this huge kind of success. And in a really nice way, I really felt like it found its audience. Um, mm. But even before we were printing it, I remember having conversations with our sales team about how many copies we'd print and this sort of fear of the fear of the book because yeah. it was so unusual. Yeah. Can um, you tell people who might not be familiar about what it's about? The Argonauts is a uh, memoir by Maggie Nelson, which um, put quite simply is the story of her falling in love with Harry Dodge, who's uh, transitioning. And at the same time, it's about her um, being pregnant and having a baby um, and her own kind of transition um, into motherhood. And the book is woven through with theory, with references to other texts. um, And it's this kind of beautiful meditation on um, love and change. and And the central metaphor is the idea of this ship that all the parts change as it as it makes its journey just as kind of love and relationships mm. um change as well but they also stay the same yeah so. and i mean the argonauts has just been a bit of a phenomenon i guess since it came i mean i guess it was known in the u the u.s before behind but like i mean maggie nelson i just it seems in the last couple of years to have been the name that is on everyone's tongue and i guess has found a real readership over here primarily i think because of this book well yeah and i think it spurned other books as well and sort of given permission i think for more mm. interesting publishing to happen as well which has been really nice to see i think people taking more chances on sure more and, unusual and did you have books. to kind of fight for that book how uh no in a way i think what was really nice was that my publishers just got it, mm. um, partly because they could see what was happening in the US with it. Um, and also they just weren't afraid of it. It was the yeah. kind of stuff that they published, um, which was really nice. It was so yeah. nice to feel supported. In yeah, it. it was the perfect kind of home for it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. so uh, then you went to work for Dawn's. <laughs> and can you, so, you know, obviously it's grown out of the, the bookshop. Does that change 
you know, how how does that how is that relationship different? You know, people always it always sounds like such a great idea. Like, why don't Waterstones publish books, for instance? But of course, it never works out that way. Why do you think it works for Don's? Because it's got Don's is this very particular type of bookshop with a very yeah, I think we know our customers very well, um, and we have very regular customers, very avid readers, mm. um, and we know what they like. Um, well, sorry. let's talk about Natalia Ginsberg, who I mentioned mm-hmm. a moment ago. The other book that I, I had read before was Family Lexicon, mm-hmm. which is just a gorgeous book about uh, how your family comes up with its own language and shorthand. But this is a book called The Little Virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you come across, you know, was this something that a, a reader or a bookseller had suggested to you? Well, uh, this, this links quite nicely with the Argonauts because I read an interview with Maggie Nelson that she really loved um, this book and really loved Natalia Ginsburg. Um, and I'd also read that Zadie Smith was a fan. Um, so sometimes with the old books you end up just kind of looking out for references to books when you're reading things and that was one, this is one of those books where I just kept seeing her name sure um, and what and was it like was it the type of thing that's a surprise to you to find that it's not in print yeah in, yeah yeah and the horrible feeling as soon as you've read something amazing that everyone else in London is also yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know you don't 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 dare tweet about it just, <laughs> just to give just away the yeah. You know, I've spoken to lots of people during the course of these interviews who buy books, for instance, uh, you know, from other territories, mm. um, like, I guess, like the Argonauts. Um, but how does it work with buying kind of things that are older and out of print? You know, it's so completely are, different. Completely different. Are yeah. you buying, like, are you dealing with like, kind of literary estates and those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you have to do when you find one of these books is just work out who is responsible for it now, mm. um, which is so each time is just is completely different it's not it's nothing like going through an agent sometimes sometimes it's very simple and the estate is represented sure. by an agent that you know and then right so someone famous inquire. who's still their books are still making money will be represented yeah by an agent. or they might be historically a british co-agent of an american author and you can go through that way right. um but so for ginsburg um i was aware that some of the books had been in print in the uk so um, I went in. I went in through the old publisher of those books, who had subsequently folded its fiction list. So there was no one kind of responsible sure. for that for those books. What you suspected might still hold the rights that you could. Buy yeah, up exactly. Or at least would help me get in touch with the translators, for example. Um, but in terms of getting the rights from the Italian uh, <laughs> <laughs> publishers, who, who are an Audi, who are an amazing Italian publisher. And there's a, there's a book by an author, which I wanted to publish a couple of years ago, and last I heard, her daughter was kind of, had disappeared. Oh, <laughs> the dear. agent couldn't get in touch. So that book hasn't been published wow. yet. We so published a book when I first started that Unbound called Letters of Note, which lots of people might mm-hmm. know as a big coffee table book, yeah. letters to and from anyone. And the permissions were just a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the reasons why we could publish it and other people couldn't, because we could crowdfund the money of helping oh, wow. to clear those permissions. But the unique thing about letters is obviously the person who wrote it owns the copyright, but the person who received it has the physical thing if you want to produce oh a gosh. facsimile of it. Um, and usually they're quite... They're, sometimes they were from no one you've ever heard of, but quite often they were from uh, historical figures. So the, the rabbit hole 
was vast. Were you responsible for doing that? I chipped in because everyone had to chip in because it was just <laughs> the great, the hugest job ever. And in a book like that, that you're really optimistic, um, certainly because the first one had sold so well into foreign languages, you can't just get away with the luxury of clearing it for use in uh, the UK or even in the English language. So it's um, it's a full time job that I, that I never want to be repeated. <laughs> and it's just you know complete detective work as well, trying to find out. Yeah, who. there's something quite fun about it until you can get it no further. Yes, yes, mm. and you sometimes you write to you know the child of the author or a family member, and you have no idea if they're going to understand what it would mean for mm. it to be republished mm. um, like are they going to go on to great fame and wealth or you know you know what th- their expectations are yeah and, and do they even want it in print anymore and yeah. if they don't there's nothing you can do sure um, um, and you spoke a little bit about like a couple of people being fans of this book you know Zadie Smith and Maggie Nelson already when you don't have the, you know quite often with publishers you know you're relying on your author to uh, be the focal point for a lot of the promotion of the book whether yeah. that is you know, doing events or writing something to compliment it that they might get a bit of publicity. How do you substitute that? Or is, you know, you spoke a little bit about be- yourself acting as the role of publicist. I mean, mm. are you also substituting <laughs> the role of the author and promoting the book a bit as well? Um, one of the things we do is we, we commission new introductions to the mm. books um, by living authors. So Little Virtues had an introduction by Rachel Kursk, um, The Gastronomic Me, which I think we'll go on to talk about. Um, we commissioned an introduction by B. Wilson, um, and that can be really helpful because that's a way for a living author to kind of say, I, I endorse this book, I, mm. I like, and, and to kind of contextualize it as well and, and argue for its continued importance. Sure, and I guess it yeah. also gets you over that hump of maybe your reader not recognizing a name. Yeah. So being able to put a quote from Zadie Smith and an introduction by Rachel Cusk in the front does get you much closer to, uh, you know, feels like less anonymous or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that readers don't necessarily care if the author is alive or dead, Mm. but if the authors they like, like a book, then that gives them a sense of... um, Trust? Yeah, Mm. and taste. um, And also discovery in a way to kind of say, Mm. you know, all my favorite authors like this book. Sure. I don't know about it, so I want to read it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next book you just briefly mentioned, which is The Gastronomical Me by M.F.K. Fisher. So this is a book about food. Yes. But that is not quite doing it justice, is it? <laughs> it's basic, it's, it's kind of proto-personal essays um, on food and eating and basically being a woman with an appetite, mm. which um, then and probably now as well is seen as quite a radical thing. Um, and it's kind of a, a memoir through meals as well. It starts when MFK Fisher is newly married and she moves from America um, to France with her husband. And she's just kind of discovering herself, basically, but through food. And she's gone from a place where food had some part in her life and suddenly she's in France where food is this... Everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so she's kind of discovering who she is and finding her voice through these essays. Um, and it's like 1929, I think, when she starts out. So it is a very particular time where I guess French food is not what it is, you know, not known in maybe the English-speaking world as. No, definitely not. Um, and 
And it's also, you know, pre-war, so I think the, the book goes through kind of um, in between the wars and the start of the Second World War. So it's also a very particular moment in time as well, in that sense as well, of like what's mm. going on historically, what's happening in Europe, um, which she's talking about too. Mm. Um, and I just noticed, I was just looking at the amazing quotes of people who love MFK Fisher. And, you know, you can, we talked in the last book a bit about getting Zadie Smith and Rachel Cusk. And similarly here, we've got, you know, Erica Wagner and Rachel Cook. But you also get to put people like W.H. Auden and John O'Dyke yeah. on the cover, which is, you know, something for every people get Yeah, to do. it's like we've summoned them from the dead to yeah. give their thoughts on this <laughs> to promote book. Book. Yeah. Um, But again, it just, I guess, grounds a potential reader who might not have heard of MFK Fisher in something they might probably will have heard of. Yes, exactly. And we, we have a Simon Sharma quote as well, which I quite Yeah, like. the greatest yeah. food writer who has ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty damn good. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, just while we're looking at this gorgeous cover for this book, about the covers. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you, you know, you're presumably these are all commissioned new artwork. Yes. That yeah. must be interesting. You know, How do you uh, put, uh, bring something contemporary to something older yeah and that's one of our um we're very clear about when we republish old books that we don't want them to look like an old book Mm. we don't want them to look like a reissue we publish them very confidently as front list um and that's why we we spend a lot of time thinking about the covers we work with really great designers who we um kind of commission to do new covers um Mm. because typically you know if you look across classics lists or you know out of print republished thing they do specifically have that look to them you know there's sometimes it's made a virtue of so you know the penguins uh great things but sometimes it is about budget and yeah and you know it's yeah. more about putting it in print because it's not in print but you've yeah. really gone all out and made it look like it is something right new and yes we again i think it's partly that idea of situating the book within a contemporary context so mm. it doesn't feel lesser than or that it's just going to sit on a shelf that we want it to be out of the front of a bookshop mm. um, and also I've, one of the things that is very technical but important for me is that we always um, we have all the books retype set yeah. so they don't have those you know when you open sometimes a classic and it's not been it's it, been scanned sure <laughs> so. and you can kind of tell so it's either feels a li- it's a little bit faded or it's a little bit off center or tilted. Yeah, or exactly. Which has its charm, but um, yeah. yeah, we like to. It's, and that goes back to being booksellers. Um, that sure. we want to we want to be proud of what we're offering our customers and what we're introducing them yeah. to. I suppose yeah, because the first thing, of course, if you're selling book, if you're buying a book, is you pick up and flick through it, and you know, certainly absolutely puts me off as if the print is too small. <laughs> like that's it. That's a real killer blow for yeah, me. Exactly. So what do you do? Do you find an old version and like have someone type it out? We send it to a company that does that, yes, <laughs> that scans that's, it basically right, for us. Yeah. But very cleverly, so yeah, that it doesn't yeah, yeah. lose it. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> and we're going to swing back to one more um, fiction, one mm-hmm. more novel that you guys have republished. Again, I think this initially came out in the 60s. Uh, yes. Which is Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker. Um, now, even like when I was reading, so one of the first jobs I had in publishing was when I was interning at Faber, and they were doing their um, their own classics mm-hmm, list there, mm-hmm. and it was about uh, writing or suggesting some blurb for it. And the fun thing was, you got these books, you know, like Sylvia Platt books or William Golding books, and you had like ten, what ten different people had written for a blurb to kind of pick from. 
But again, oh, you've yeah. gone. This is like something that is incredibly like modern. You know, it doesn't feel dated or again like that's a, seems like a real conscious choice. Yes, definitely. Um, and I mean, with with a book like that, um, I heard about that book from uh, NYRB, who publish. Um, have an amazing classics list in the US um, I heard about that book at London Book Fair and so that was in sort of April and we published it in June, July wow. oh my um, and the idea was that we, we just loved it and thought this is a perfect summer book mm. it's a it, it feels really fresh. Um, yeah, I mean, I might just read this one sentence which you've got on the inside flap, which when you sent it to me, just it was immediately hooking, which is, I'm not at heart a jumper. I think I knew all the time I was sizing up the bridge that the strong possibility was I'd attend my sister's wedding. <laughs> like, if that's not a contemporary <laughs> setup for a novel, I don't know what is. Well, I, th- I was also being invited to a lot of weddings. Oh, really? <laughs> this was my sort of subtweet publishing <laughs> of just being like, can... this is a book about not liking weddings. <laughs> and you gifted it to all the couples as you arrived, yeah, I'm exactly. sure. Um, and then we're going to switch gear a little bit and talk about something which is very contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is In the Distance by Herman Diaz. How did this book come to be on your list? Um, so this was published by a great um, indie press in the US called Coffee House, um, and I kept noticing amazing reviews for it um, and called it in, and we all loved it, um, and just pu- published it like that. But then it was a finalist for the Pulitzer, which was amazing and such a, um, I mean, the right choice and very deserving, and that was. It was just so nice to work with another indie and then mm. to have this. Um, so had the book, the book had already come out in the States. The, the book had come out and was getting really nice attention, um, but obviously was published by a small press and yeah. um, wasn't, you know, it wasn't with one of the big houses. Um, so it was really gratifying that it was recognized mm. um, for its And quality. lots of people will, I guess, be surprised that a book that is getting really well reviewed in one territory is not automatically picked up in another certainly like the that uk us back and forth but it, that isn't always the case at all no definitely not i think as a independent it's very it's very helpful for us actually that they don't always get picked mm. up because it means that we can kind of find really great stuff that yeah. hasn't been um and one i mean one of the reasons is obviously we work with much shorter lead times than big publishers right. and so is that because of wh- why is that how do you get away with that? <laughs> <laughs> yes because we're uh we're a smaller operation. Um, there are loads of departments that have to know things very far in advance. Sure. Um, so we, we're getting better at being a bit faster on things. But um, it means that if we like something, we can react, like with Cassandra at the Wedding, and publish it very mm. quickly. Um, so one of the reasons that's always given for um, lead times being so long is often that you want to give the book a proper sell-in into book Yeah, shops, that's true, yeah. Um, at which, you know, uh, you know, often people's users say things like, oh, Waterstone Spider books six months before they come out and you need to have a cover and all these things. But I guess what you guys have a direct line into a bookshop that helps. I think our, our booksellers don't... Um, it doesn't matter so much to our booksellers, mm. especially, you know, we often share manuscripts of things that we're reading that we like with our booksellers. Really? And they, oh, wow. And they feed in and, and say what they think. And for them, if they like a book, they'd like to sell it tomorrow if they can. They, mm. don't, they don't need that huge lead time. Um, but we... 
but obviously we need to make proofs and yeah get it towards stones and do all of that sure too. and so do you so we've talked about five books here so far and you know three of them have been republished classics two of them come from the US do you also look for things in the UK are you publishing like originals in that sense yeah definitely um, and we're definitely doing a bit more of that um in june we have um a collection of essays called at the pond which um is a selection of um essays that were that are about the Hampstead ladies pond which my colleague sophie missing um commissioned and it was her idea and she brought all the writers together and many of those are british authors that were that we commissioned especially Mm. for the book and are you i mean are you behaving like everyone else in that regard like are you hoping to get books from agents here Um, yeah yeah and we see a lot of things and um definitely offer for them but obviously if it's um our budgets aren't as big as sure. <laughs> some people. So we've talked about kind of three books that have come have been republished, and we've talked about two books that have come from other territories and published in the US before. Mm-hmm. So one thing we haven't talked about is kind of editorial work and a kind of line by line editing. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you get to do at Daunt, or is that something you do? At, I know you're also co-editor at the White Review. Sure. Um, yeah, at both, it's something that I do and that I really enjoy. Um, at Daunt, it's um, definitely something that we're doing with um, translations and we're doing more original translations at the moment. Um, so we're editing those and new books that we're buying that right. um, um, from British authors or original texts that we're taking on. Um, and then the White Review... Uh, yes, that is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure lots of people will have heard of the White Review, but how, I'm interested to hear you. How do you describe the White Review? Uh, so the White Review is a literary and arts magazine uh, based in London. Um, we uh, produce a print magazine three times a year, and we also have regular online features, um, and we publish a mixture of new writing, um, fiction, essay. Um, we run interviews with writers and artists. Um, we publish original artwork, um, and our covers now um, have an original artwork by a contemporary artist. Um, and we also publish poetry and roundtables on um, contemporary issues. Sure. And how did you come to be involved with it? Well, obviously, as a I'm a lifelong fan, and <laughs> for as long as it's been around. That's how it works. Um, and um, I'd done a little bit for them, so I'd interviewed An- the poet Anne Carson um, wow. for them, and I knew them very well, knew Francesca Wade very well, who's my co-editor, and when um, Jacques Testard and Ben Easton were um, kind of stepping back from the day-to-day running of it, they're both... Um, now on on the sort of metaphorical board uh, it's actually not metaphorical it does exist <laughs> there is a real board um, um they um francesca was th- francesca was thinking about taking over and we kind of came up with this idea at the pub that we could maybe do it together because it's always had two editors mm. and it would be a nice for me it'd be a nice way to hang out with francesca sure. <laughs> but also to um to edit this amazing thing that um, is so I think very precious in mm. in British and kind of inter- in international publishing because it's very much focused on new writing on translation 
um, on original essay and making space mm. for um, those things in a very beautiful setting. Yeah, and I think because I, I mean, I spoke to um, a group of aspiring novelists during the week, and one question that came up was uh, someone who had been labelled with that dreadful word uncommercial and was worried that that was the end of their uh, <laughs> newly found career. But I mean, I think the, the White Review is one of those spaces where the unconventional and exciting and unusual, the Claire Louise Bennett of the world, exactly, um, yeah. can really Dreamy. like, yeah, exactly. I mean, so it, it's it's a really, as you say, real precious thing. Yeah, and actually, not being commercial is such a benefit mm. because you don't have to worry about. Obviously, we we do worry about the finances, but the point isn't to sell thousands and thousands of copies and to make loads of money off it that's to not break into the mainstream yeah that's not the point is to to create a print space in particular a print space for these for uh, for the most exciting writing and for the writing that's actually doing something new mm. and um, so when you when you say you co-edit does that mean that you are you involved in everything are you taking submissions commissioning pieces uh, compiling yeah together with a team um of editors um so we have um, an editorial team and we all um, take submissions, we all commission and um, call things in or ask or approach writers um, and we all edit as well. So it's, it's very, um, the editing is very collaborative and very um, thorough and thoughtful um, and definitely one of the things I like best about it is just being able to spend a long time editing and developing something um, sometimes over a few months really yeah because I guess that um, as a publisher you're increasingly uh, encountering things that are completed are nearing as completed as possible before they find their way to you you know an agent will always put editorial guidance into their book so that there's more chance of you buying it so it's the work at the complete other end of the spectrum which is maybe new pieces or again as you say are not there for kind of solely for commercial purposes it's kind of a nice change of gear as well exactly yeah and and speaking to kind of younger or emerging writers and just uh, kind of getting a sense of what they might like to write about and sort of suggesting ideas or mm. hearing what their ideas are and then just really kind of um really originating a piece mm. that, that didn't exist before is really nice and thinking or in sometimes thinking how can we get x person to write about yeah who could write about x subject um, yeah, i'd love to hear that person do it you know what yeah that? exactly and so and we have a great piece um in the next issue um by christine okoff on recycling right. and about um the kind of ethics of recycling and what it um, what everyone thinks it means, what it really means, um, and that—that's just—that's just a fantastic piece that came out of um, Francesca hearing about a conference paper that the author had given mm. um, and asking if she could develop it into an essay. Yeah. So I think what you said about space is so interesting and something that isn't maybe spoken about enough because you know lots of the editors I've spoken to for this podcast have talked about coming across manuscripts either unpublished or books um, that they loved but didn't fit into what they're tasked with doing at the job Um, and of course that is just the job and being a professional however I guess when you have something like the White Review which its remit is 
I guess, more open or isn't linked to, I mean, I guess, commerciality. Um, because, of course, publishers do have to make money in order to keep the door open, and, of course, the White Review do too. But, uh, you know, that freedom is really um, special. Yeah, definitely. And there's just something really nice about... Um, it's really nice for me to think, you know, if I can't do something at Daunt, maybe it's something that we could mm. publish at the Wire Review or vice versa. And to have the, you know, I think I'm really lucky to have those two different um, spaces for work. Um, and uh, lots of things that appear first in the Wire Review end up becoming books, but they're just not ready. And I sure. think that it's actually, I don't think, especially for, for young or new writers, I don't think they should be pushed or forced into developing before they're ready and yeah. so it's quite nice that they have that space to try things out yeah, I guess it almost acts like doing a proposal like it has to be a well-rounded piece you can't just have the first chapter or something no but no exactly yeah concept or sometimes yeah yeah exactly now that's lots of things you do as an editor and as a publisher I'm going to finally ask you to behave like a reader a little bit um, have you read anything recently that you've really loved I recently read for the first time an old book, um, Giovanni's Room by James Walden. Oh my God, I love that book. <laughs> uh, which was really amazing. Um, I hadn't read his fiction before. Me neither. I read it um, like, I mean, maybe a year ago and like wouldn't have known him as an essayist without having read the essays um, right. and came across that book, I think in an airport, which I was really imp- Oh wow! And subsequently he was really impressed. With. <laughs> yeah, I think Heathrow Terminal 2 is a surprisingly good book. <laughs> good to know. Anyway, um, and it just loved it, loved it, loved it. Yeah, it's, I found it very intense and sad. Mm. Um, and I was reading on a beach, which possibly wasn't the best place for it. Mm. Um, because I guess most people will know him as a you know someone who wrote about race and about faith, I guess as well a little bit, and lots of it, and because most of, you know his novels are very American centric, whereas this is of course set in Paris and around it, and it it just felt like he was able to just tell a story in a way. Yeah, it's a really sad love story. Really, it's a story about a man who can't love himself really and can't um, be honest, and there's that really horrible line where he says to his fiance i didn't lie to you i just lied to myself so gutting and thank you for listening if you enjoyed hearing about the white review join me next week when my guest will be its founder jacques testard Jacques is also the founder of Fitzcarraldo Editions, one of my absolute favourite publishers who publish both contemporary fiction and long-form essays. Founded in just 2014, they already boast amongst their authors winners of the Nobel Prize and Man Booker International Prize. Don't miss it. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter or at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.